0: I'd like you to open your Bibles now, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 6. And this evening we're looking once again into events that will happen right after the second coming of Christ. The time that we're talking about here is the tribulation period. This is seven years of terrible uh, calamity that will come upon the earth immediately after Christ comes and raptures the church. That means that all living Christians have been taken out of the world and at the same time, all of those that are dead, have died in Christ, will come up out of their graves. They'll be raised to go up with the living saints into heaven. And During this seven-year period of time after the rapture, uh, Christ takes the title deed of the earth and he begins to reclaim what was lost when Satan usurped God's authority. Now, we all know this story, how that Adam was tempted in the garden by Satan. And when Adam fell... God put a curse upon the entire earth and since that curse all this time since then the whole creation as it says in the book of Romans is groaning until the time of the lifting of that curse comes and this is what we're actually studying this is when uh, Christ reclaims the earth he'll purge it from all of the evil and all those who perpetrate evil all evil will be banished forever. And the steps by which Jesus will do this to reclaim the earth happens over a period of a little bit more than 1,007 years. We're talking now about the first seven years of that period. And this is when God unleashes his fury upon the whole world. And he does this in a series of judgments. According to Revelation, the title deed of the earth. And this is what Jesus has taken out of the hand of the Father. It's the title deed to the earth. And this title deed contains... the the method by which Jesus will reclaim the earth. And the title deed is a scroll that's sealed with seven seals, and under each of those seals there are horrible judgments. Only Christ is the one who has the power and the authority to open those seals, and when he does, he opens up one seal at a time. And then the Bible describes what takes place with the opening of each of those seals. What we've studied uh, thus far is the opening of the first five seals. Tonight we're going to look into the... Uh, opening of the sixth seal. So t- we're looking at Revelation chapter 6. If you'd stand with me, please. We'll read about the sixth seal, beginning in verse number 12 in the sixth chapter. Revelation 6, verse number 12. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and, lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. The stars of heaven fell into the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it was rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and great men, and rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb." For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? Heavenly Father, we come to you tonight and we open up this terrible text, terrible judgment that occurs under this sixth seal. We ask you, Lord, that you might help us to understand very clearly how important it is to know you and to make sure that we don't enter in such a terrible time of judgment, and I pray, Lord, that every person here tonight will be saved if they know about this they understand christ is savior and no person here will have to ever worry about entering into this time bless the message tonight in jesus name we pray amen you may be seated before we begin this uh, third part of the message i want to just review for just a moment the first five seals that we've talked about and what they mean I've listed those on your listening sheet tonight, and so just very briefly, I want to describe to you what happens under the opening of these first five seals. The first four are found in this chapter, verses 1 through 8, and these are known commonly as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And that's because that there is a rider on a horse that comes out with the opening of each of the seals, and each uh, rider represents a different kind of judgment that God passes upon the earth. So chapter 6 opens up, and the first seal that's opened on the scroll, uh, a rider rider on a white horse comes out, and this represents political judgment. This seal is the introduction to the Antichrist. This is a world leader who will arise during the tribulation, and the entire world will come under his power. There will be one single government over all of the world, And this man who controls everything is a very fascinating character. He has great promise, he has great abilities, but he's really just Satan's puppet. And so he begins as a political and an economic savior, but he turns out to be a diabolical fiend. Then the second seal is open, and out comes the rider on the red horse. This represents military judgment. The Antichrist, who promised that there would be peace on the earth, Uh, does that for a little while, but then the peace is shattered as war breaks out because he attempts to consolidate the entire world underneath his power. Then the third seal is broken and out rides the black horse. This is economic judgment, the economic prosperity that was on the earth for a little while. The Antichrist is able to bring about some relief for people and everything looks good, But then the cost of war and the social programs that he implements bogs down the world economy and all collapses into chaos. And so famine and starvation become rampant throughout the world under this third seal. Then we have the opening of the fourth seal. And out comes a pale horse, a ghastly rider. And this uh, represents welfare judgment. The pale horse is the color of death. And as he comes on the scene, uh, the world has already been shook by famine, by starvation. And there's war that has existed all over the world. And because of all the deaths of, of all of these people, disease begins to set in. And so this is a judgment upon man's health. Then we come to the fifth seal. And this seal is different from the first four because now the scene shifts from earth and we have a look into heaven. And there we see the fifth seal are the martyrs. And this represents religious judgment. During the tribulation time, there will be special witnesses that God will raise up for preaching of the gospel. And through the witness of these particular people that God raises, there are thousands, perhaps even millions, of people that are saved. But the hatred against God and his people is so great that there are literally thousands, perhaps even millions, of people who believe, who are killed for their belief in Christ. So the fifth seal opens up and we see those martyrs in heaven and they're there under the altar of God and the martyrs cry out for judgment against those who took their lives. So the fifth seal represents a terrible time of persecution for those who trust in Christ during the tribulation period. But now we come to the opening of the sixth seal. And this is what we find in verse number 12. There's a new judgment that comes and this one comes upon the earth. Judgment upon the earth, and this is natural judgment. Natural disasters, that's the theme of the sixth seal. And by natural, I don't mean that these are uh, accidental judgments and they're not uncalculated judgments. These are natural disasters that are brought about directly by God acting upon and manipulating natural forces upon the earth. Now, previous to this, it seems like all the judgments that we've seen so far have been caused by the Antichrist action because of what he did with the economy and the the, uh, world economy collapsing and all the wars that take place. That looks like all those things are brought about because of what the Antichrist has done. And of course, the Lord uses that to bring about His judgment. But here we see God bringing judgment directly to bear upon men, and He does this through manipulating, manipulating all of these natural forces of the earth. Now, some of the things that we're going to talk about tonight are, are so fantastic that there are people who believe that, well, these things can only be symbolic. I mean, this can't really be true. It has to be symbolic. And so they say, well, these things that we're reading here, they represent changes in in government. They represent the upsetting of of traditions and and, and opinions that people have. But I don't see any reason why that we shouldn't take what the Word of God says as literal here because any time that we read in the Word of God about these kinds of things, unless the Bible tells us otherwise, we are to interpret God's Word literally. So I don't think there's any reason for us to believe that these things aren't real. So here is a terrible time of judgment. There is judgment heaped upon the judgment that's already come because of the opening of the previous seals. Now let's look at first then, under this sixth seal, the worldwide forces. Verses 12 through 14 describe how that God will pull the strings of all these natural forces and then all of these disasters will happen. Now, here's what we see, first of all. Number one is the shaking of the earth. He says, And I beheld when it opened the sixth seal, and, lo, there was a great earthquake. Anybody here ever felt an earthquake? Well, I know that you have. Earthquakes in California are as common as Democrats, so I know most of you have probably felt one. You know, I still remember that uh, small quake that we had here. when I remember that night when I was preaching? And uh, thing the mo- build, building started to sway a little bit like this, and everybody jumped up and ran out, and I was still preaching up there. And, and nobody stopped to check on the preacher to see how he was. Uh, that still hurts my feelings when I think about it. But uh, we've, we've experienced that. Uh, the word for earthquake in verse number 12 is the word seismos. And what that means in the Greek is shaking. And that's, of course, the very same word from which we get seismograph. Uh, which is, as you know, an instrument that's used for measuring the intensity of earthquakes. When we think about natural disasters, um, most of you, as everybody knows, I'm from Kentucky, from the southeastern part of the country, and we're used to violent storms and tornadoes that occur, and just about every year we're going to have one of those. I've watched uh, from, our, from our kitchen window a, a funnel cloud of a tornado before it touched down. And just a few years before we moved here from, to, from uh, Kentucky, there was a tornado that touched down about a mile from our house, and it, it tore up trees and structures for about a mile wide down through this particular area that was close to us. Well, I lived through that, but I, I wouldn't say that I was necessarily afraid of that I mean, I go year after year, we hear about them. I wasn't really afraid of those kinds of storms. And usually, you get some warning about that. You know, they have the radar and all of that, and so uh, they can tell you pretty much when a tornado is going to occur. But when you think about an earthquake, it's a different story. When we moved here here to California, I remember in the year uh, 2000 that there was an earthquake in Napa. We were living there at that time in 2000, and this earthquake came on Labor Day weekend, It was a 5.2 quake, and that was my first experience with anything other than just a tremor. Well, when that quake uh, struck, it was 1.30 a.m. in the morning, And uh, there were dishes that were falling out of the cupboards. The TV in our room was turned over. Went into Lauren's room, and she had a nice curio cabinet there that had all all kinds of figurines in it. And that turned over and broke everything that was inside. A brick fireplace in our living room came down. And, And so there was all kinds of things that took place, and it was just a violent shaking. And I remember after that was over, just a feeling of helplessness. Nobody could warn you about it. have no idea that it's coming, and you just feel totally helpless because there's nothing at all that you can do about it. It's a surprise that comes at an unexpected moment. Now, that was just a 5.2 quake. California and other places of the world have experienced much, much worse. We know there have been hundreds and even thousands of people that have been killed in earthquakes. But here we're talking about an earthquake that is so violent that it's going to be a worldwide occurrence. You know, they keep telling us that the big quake is coming in California. And uh, when it comes, they say it might even split away the entire coastline of the state. And the half the, I don't know, that area of the state will probably fall off into the ocean. Well, here's one that's worldwide in scope. And people will see this. They'll, they'll realize there's never been an earthquake like this before. And, and they'll understand that this must be caused by God. But there's an interesting thing about it, and we'll see this in a few minutes when we get to it, that people are not going to turn to God and trust him even though they admit that this is God's power that's caused it. So, first of all, we have the shaking of the earth. The next thing we see here is the shutting off of the sun. It says, "...and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair." If you do much studying about the book of Revelation and you read different commentaries... You'll, you'll come very quickly to a realization that there are some people who are just determined that they're going to uh, explain away everything that happens here in a, with natural, naturalistic explanations. And you'll see, you know, these commentaries are divided. There's a, there's a dividing line between them, between the ones who see naturalistic explanations and those who see a pure miracle in every one of these occurrences. So some prefer to say that, well, uh, they'll agree with the earthquake that comes, and they'll say, well, the next part of this, when it talks about the sun being sackcloth or black as sackcloth as hair, that this is a natural result of the earthquake that comes before it. Now, one of the things that happens in earthquakes is there's a lot of seismic activity and volcanic activity. And so there can be volcanoes that erupt during earthquakes. And we saw this uh, a few years ago, it didn't necessarily happen during an earthquake, but we saw what happens when a volcano explodes. In 1980, Mount St. Helens, the complete top of that mountain, blew off. And if you remember, the western part of the United States was covered in ash. And, and, the, and the sun was actually darkened for a few days because, because of that. So there are some people who say, well, that's what happens here. The, the volcanoes come up, they erupt, and, and so we have all this ash in the air. There are people who try to explain away the darkness that occurred when uh, Jesus was crucified by saying, well, there was a sandstorm that arose, and the sandstorm blocked out the sun, and so it was dark. Well, I, I prefer to believe that there's something different happened happen here. I, I believe that God, who created all things, has control of all natural forces. For instance, we were talking about those earthquakes just a moment ago. Um, God has done that before. He, he has... He shook the earth with earthquakes. When he spoke from Mount Sinai and gave the law, there was an earthquake. When Jesus arose from the dead, the Bible says there was an earthquake. God sent an earthquake when Paul and Silas were in the Philippian jail, and that, that jail and the earthquake uh, caused the, the shaking of that prison, and many of the prisoners were able to escape had, had they wanted to do that. So God is able to control all of these natural forces. So when we talk about the sun being blocked out, I believe that this is probably God just shutting off the sun. He's able to do that. You remember when we were studying the book of Joshua, there was that long day when the sun shone for, for longer than it was supposed to shine, and God allowed it to do that because he was uh, giving Joshua the opportunity to defeat his enemies before it, before it got dark. Now, there's some people who look at that and they say, Well, that can't happen. Because in order to do that, the earth would have to slow its rotation. And we just don't know what would happen. There would be irreversible effects if the rotation of the earth was to slow down. Well, I happen to think that God who put the world in motion to begin with, who spins it on its axis, can stop it when he wants to, and he can reverse all the effects of it when he wants to. To me, it's foolish to think that God created everything and then to think that God can't control all of these things, that he can't stop the natural forces when he decides to do so. And so I think it may very well be that God will just shut out the sun. He can stop the natural processes, he can restart them anytime that he wants, and he can deal with all the effects that will come from that. So God controls it all. Then we see something else that happens here. Number three is the sanguine moon, and the moon became as blood. Now again, we could apply a naturalistic explanation. We could say, well, there's the earthquake, there's the volcanoes, and all this ash is thrown up into the air, and so that colors the skies so that when the sun, or the moon rather, shines through that, it appears to be red. And we've seen things like that as well. When there's uh, different colors in the atmosphere, the moon can appear to be a different color. But it's also possible that, that God, who allows the moon to give off what we think looks like a a white light when it shines, that God could very well cause that to be a red light that's reflected. He can do that because he's in control. You know, it's interesting that Isaiah talked about the second coming. I mean, even before Christ came the first time, in the Old Testament, Isaiah was talking about the second coming. And he says in Isaiah 13, verse 10, "...for the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened in his going forth." and the moon shall not cause her light to shine. So God's in control. Number four, we see another disaster here, and that's the shooting stars. Verse number 13, And the stars of heaven fell under the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of a mighty wind. Now, this is one of those statements that, when people read this in the Bible, they'll say one of two things about it. Number one, or, or one of two ways, either the Bible is not true, the Bible is not true, or definitely, here he's talking in symbolic language. anybody who's been to school knows this, that the stars are many, many, many more times, hundreds and thousands, even millions of times bigger than the earth. And if one star got just a little bit closer to us than the sun is, we'd begin to sizzle and we'd burn up immediately. Well, so how could this be? How can the stars fall from heaven? Well... There's got to be an accommodation for language here. I mean, it's as old as the hills, isn't it, to call a meteor a shooting star. Anybody ever heard that expression before? I mean, you can go out at night and and sometimes you can see a shooting star going across the heavens. And probably, most likely, this is what it is. It's an accommodation for language. Here it's talking about meteors. Now, uh, most meteors that enter the earth's atmosphere are relatively small. And so they burn up before they reach the ground. And so that's what you see, that flash that's going across the sky. But there have been times when meteors have struck the earth. Now, I have a picture uh, here for you tonight of one that hit in Arizona. Has anybody ever visited this before? This crater in Arizona? Now, you know, of course, they tell us that happens millions upon millions of years ago. But uh, they're certain that this was a, a meteor or a small asteroid that struck the earth. And this one was about only 80 feet in diameter. And what it did was it made a crater that was 4,000 feet across and 600 feet deep. There, were, there could, have been, could be in the tribulation period hundreds of these that will strike the earth. Now, this one in Arizona was more explosive or had more explosive power than 150 atomic bombs that were the size of the one that was dropped on Hiroshima in World War II. So this particular one struck the earth at about 30,000 miles per hour. Now, can you imagine what it would be like when the Bible says right here in Revelation there'll be so many of these that hit the earth that it'd be like a fig tree casting its figs to the ground? I mean, it's going to be a terrible time. If, if a meteor, the size of this one, struck Ronard Park, it would kill everybody within a two-mile radius. People as far away as Petaluma would be burned because of this meteor. Now, you can see why that you come to the uh, last part of this chapter and you find out that people are are running around, and they're crying out for to be saved from this, to be hidden from God's wrath. But God's not finished with it yet. There's still more things that occur in the sixth seal. Number five, we see the splitting of the sky. And the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. We don't know exactly what that means, but most likely, it's a reference that God will black out the entire sky just like you pulled a curtain over the entire universe. Now, can you imagine what that would be like? That no longer can you see a star shine. The sun doesn't shine. The moon doesn't shine. Uh, there's no planets that are shining in the heavens. That'll be a frightening experience. Now, where is there going to be a scientist who can put a naturalistic explanation on that? How, how is he going to explain that away? So I don't think when these things happen that you're going to find too many atheists. They'll realize it's God who does this. And then there's one more statement that we find here. Number six is the shifting of the land. And every mountain and island removed out of their places. So you have these earthquakes, you have volcanoes, you have asteroids that strike the earth, and the topography of the earth will change. You know, if we'd lived in the time prior to Noah... We would have seen a a very vastly different world. Today you can go visit, you know, certain places like on tops of mountains, you can find seashells on top of mountains. And scientists will tell you, well, that mountain was once on, on the floor of the sea. And you can go down into some valleys, and scientists will tell you, geologists say, Well, that mountain or that valley was once a mountain. We know that the earth didn't always look the way that it does right now. It might have been and probably was that instead of having seven seas like we have today, that there was only one sea, that there was only one earth, uh, a mass of earth, covered or, or surrounded, I should say, by this one sea. And scientists, uh, you look this up and they'll tell you, you know, there, there's such the thing as a as continental drift. They talk about the moving of the, of the seismic plates and so on, that there's continental drift. But I don't think that we have to go look for scientific explanations in this because we can read the Bible. And we find out that there was a worldwide flood. And the Bible says that the fountains of the deep were broken up. And it tells us that the mountains and valleys were formed. And when all of this was over, what happened was that there was water that was trapped in huge basins, and there was land that appeared in different places. So when this sixth seal is broken, things are going to change. Mountains will be leveled. Oceans will begin to run in on the land. And I can imagine that uh, cities that haven't been destroyed by all the asteroids that come into the earthquakes and all of that that happens, that they may be deluged by water as it rushes in into those cities. So millions of people are going to die under this, and this comes right on the heels of those first four seals. So there's war, there's economic collapse, there's famine, there's disease. People are dying right and left. And then God comes along and he unleashes this sick seal and there's these devastating natural disasters. So what do you suppose that people are thinking when all of this happens? Well, next we see the worldwide fear. When all of this happens, there's worldwide fear. Panic ensues from every corner of the globe. Nobody knows where to go. Nobody knows what to do. You know, I, I remember when I was young, that one time, uh, you know, we lived, in a, or we, we lived in a city, but my dad pastored a church that was in the country. And so on Sunday afternoon, we were invited to a farmer's house for, for dinner. And they were going to have a chicken dinner. But they didn't go to Safeway to get their chicken. They uh, went out in the barnyard, and they just grabbed a chicken, and they took him, and they stretched his neck out over a tree stump, an old tree stump, and they chopped off his head with an axe. Well, one of the things that you do when you kill a chicken that way is that you tie his wings down. Because if you don't, that chicken will sometimes get up, and he'll run off. And uh, his, he'll flap and even, he'll flap his wings and even fly for a short distance. Well, they didn't tie this chicken's wings down. And so when they cut off his head, that chicken jumped off of there and took off without his head, running around for a little while with that blood spurting up out of that stump. That's a good thought, isn't it? But, um, but that's like it's going to, it's going to be in the, in, the, uh, in the tribulation period when these things happen. People are going to be running around like a chicken with its head cut off. They won't know where to go or what to do. So all the people are in panic. Now, notice then who's affected by it. This is in verse number 15. And the kings of the earth... And the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. Number one, we see, this is not restricted in range. What I mean is that there is no one who's going to escape this terror. Now, you think there are some people think that because they're wealthy, because they're rich, because they're famous, because they have position that they can escape such things as this. And then you have poor people who think, well, I'm so poor, nobody's ever going to notice me. But here we find that, that when this comes, it doesn't matter how rich or how poor you are. It doesn't make any difference if you're an oil baron or if you're a bartender. It's going to affect everybody. The fear will be so great at this time and so thick that you can feel it and you can taste it. But the amazing thing about it is, and I referenced it just a moment ago, the amazing thing is it does not result in repentance it does not result in repentance. Now, you would think that people would see all these things that are happening. They get down on their knees. They begin to pray to a holy God and they would ask him for forgiveness. These are people that have lived it up. They enjoyed that economic boom. They enjoyed following the Antichrist. They loved to do anything they wanted to do. The Holy Spirit's been restrained. Sin is rampant upon the earth. Uh, These people flaunt their perversions. They care nothing at all about crime. They don't care about cheating. They don't care about murder. They do it all. But when they see this, when the day of restitution comes, nobody repents. Nobody gets down on their knees and repents towards God for all of these natural calamities. Now, you think that after seeing what God could do, that the fear would be so great in their hearts that the first thing they'd do, they'd get on their knees and they'd cry out for God to give them mercy. But they don't. They don't seek God. They don't cry out in belief. and They don't repent of their sins. Up to this point in my sermon, all I've done is just given you some descriptive things. Now I'm going to give you something that's a little bit Doctrine. So let's throw a little doctrine in here. There are some people that are so foolish to believe that trusting Christ is just a simple thing to do. At any time that they want, they can just change their mind about God. They believe they have the ability at any moment to change their ways. They can believe in Christ, and they can do it any time that they feel like it. And so you have some people who say, Well, I just think that I'll wait. I'll live it up now, I'll I'll wait until I see these things start to happen, and then when all this happens, I'm going to change my mind. When death starts to come, or when I get old and I'm ready to die, I'm going to change my mind about God, and I'll believe in Him. You know, that's almost so foolish that it doesn't merit a response, because there's no one who's in control of salvation. You can't change your mind whenever you want to change your mind. Salvation is in the hands of God. And God can remove the day of grace for anybody to be saved at any moment that he wants to. And then further uh, on this point, I mean, your salvation results from an operation of the Holy Spirit. You don't control the Holy Spirit. You can't turn him off whenever you want to. And you can't say, Holy Spirit, come and it's at your bidding. It doesn't work that way. These people do not repent because God doesn't allow them to repent. You know, that that might seem harsh to some people and it might not fit in with the picture that you have of God. But God, in fact, does this because God says this is not up to you. God is the one who graciously allows repentance. I want you to listen to these words that believers in Jerusalem said after they found out that Cornelius was saved, the Gentile Cornelius after Peter preached to him. Here's what they said, verse 18 in Acts chapter 11 When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Now, that's a very simple acknowledgment that if anybody's going to be saved, it's because God has allowed them to be saved. God has given the grace that they can repent. And so God can withhold that any time that he pleases. Well, will God withhold their ability to repent? Well, in fact, he does. This is what Paul says about the, the tribulation in the book of Second Thessalonians. There he says in verses 11 and 12, And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that you don't want to wait. It tells us you don't want to take a chance that you'll ever enter into this time. You see, what God can do, he can just throw that blanket over the entire world and nobody is going to be able to see him. God's not going to allow repentance. And so this is also proof positive that there's no one who's saved by simply a mere presentation of the gospel. Nobody's saved because there's a miracle that happens. The only way that you can be saved is that God works in your heart and he grants you those divine graces of repentance and faith. Now, let's go on. Let's see what happens next. Because next comes the worldwide fallacy. Let's start reading again in verse number 15. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains, And rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day... Of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Now, let me give you the biggest fallacy that we find in this whole section. This isn't on your listening sheet tonight, so you might want to just pencil this part in. The biggest fallacy is what we find in verse number 17. It says, for the great day of his wrath has come. They just think that the great day of his wrath has come. What they're experiencing here is just a taste of God's wrath. Now, what we'll see here is something else that's going to happen. In chapter 7, we have what's called a parenthetical section of Revelation. And this comes before the opening of the seventh seal. We don't actually get to the opening of the seventh seal until we get into chapter 8. And there we find out that things get even worse. And that's the period that's referred to as the day of wrath of the Lord. So the great day of wrath hasn't even yet come. So here you have these people that that think, well, it can't get any worse than this. Things can't happen any worse than this. And people will begin to cry out for death, and they'll say, the great day of his wrath has come, but it hasn't come just yet. But let me show you two fallacies that we find in the verses. Number one is that protection is possible. That's a fallacy. All the rich... All the poor, all the mighty, all the insignificant, the Word of God says that they're going to try to hide themselves in the caves and the rocks and the mountains. You know, I read that that portion of Scripture, and the thing that came to my mind was Osama bin Laden. You know, he's been hiding out in caves on the border of Afghanistan and Pakistan for seven years now, and we haven't been able to find him. The United States Army has developed all of these Uh, bombs that can can penetrate cave systems and blow them up. But we still haven't got Osama bin Laden. So really the only thing we need to wait for is the tribulation to come. And that's because there's not going to be any cave deep enough for him to hide in. God's going to drive him out. And that's what happens to these people. They run into the caves. They go to the mountains. They hide in the rocks and think, here we'll be protected. But they won't be protected. There is no protection from this unmerciful onslaught that God brings. And so they cry out for death. Now, here then is a a fallacy. And again, this is not on your listening sheet, but there's a great fallacy here about death. And that's because death delivers no one. Now, they think that death would be the thing that would bring relief, but they're only kidding themselves because what death does, it brings the eternal wrath of God upon them. You know, death... uh, Death brings about the everlasting fires of hell. Some people teach that we're just annihilated when we die. I mean, if, if you're not a believer in Christ, you die, you're annihilated. You don't exist anymore. The Bible teaches that there is an everlasting soul. Every person has an everlasting soul that's either going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell. There is no annihilation. And so they think that death will deliver them. Death won't deliver them. It just sends them into the fires of hell. Now, we have our political leaders, we have our religious leaders that say, you don't need to really worry about these things. There there are many paths to God. You just choose the path that you want. But the truth of the matter is there's only one path to God. That's Jesus Christ. And if you die outside of him, the only thing that waits for you is hell. So it's pure fallacy. It's a fantasy to think otherwise. Now, God has spoken these things in his word. Now, if God's word is not true, there's no hope for any of mankind. And that's because if there is no hell, there is no heaven. The same word of God tells us about both. And the same word of God tells us about salvation. So if salvation in Christ is a myth, any kind of salvation is a myth. So that's a fallacy. Now the second one that we see here I think is a quite interesting one. And this is the paradox of the Lamb. Verse number 16. And said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us. And hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The paradox of the Lamb leads to a terrible fallacy. You know what this is? The terrible fallacy of this paradox is that wrath cannot be true. God's wrath simply cannot be true. Now, I could better state it this way. Jesus' wrath cannot be true. And that's what people think because Jesus is the Lamb. So what they've done, they've constructed this sweet, meek, syrupy Jesus who, who uh, just loves everybody no matter what they do and will not punish anybody no matter what they do. Well, here's the last statement for your listening sheet tonight. And don't put things away after I say this because we're not through yet. We have something more we want to read. But here, the last statement is, beware the lamb. Now, the paradox in this is that a lamb is not fierce, Lamb's not anything to be afraid of. You know, a few weeks ago at the end of one of the sermons, I said, nobody puts up a sign, beware of the lamb. Nobody's afraid of the lamb. And lamb is a sweet, harmless, innocent creature. Nobody's afraid of a lamb. You know, I remember uh, back in Kentucky again that uh, there, was two, there were two brothers that owned a business that was near my brother-in-law's business. And what they did was they sold uh, parts off of... of uh, Trucks, you know, used trucks and wreck trucks and parts off of cars. And so they had this big 10-foot wall fence that was all the way, uh, a chain-link fence that, that was 10-foot tall that was all the way around their property. And at night, they would let out these Doberman pinchers and these uh, pit bulls, and you didn't want to be behind that fence when they let the dogs out. Now, let's just imagine that they'd put up a sign there. Instead of saying, Beware the dogs, it said, Beware the lamb. You know what would happen? they get robbed blind every night because nobody's afraid of a lamb. So here's our paradox. This is no ordinary lamb. Now the paradox of the lamb is that he's no longer that meek and lowly Jesus who came the first time. This time he comes with power and authority and with judgment. And no one's going to escape the penetrating eyes of the lamb. So no one need think that God is just going to pass over lightly what we've done. And he'll say, oh, it's all right. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. It won't be okay. It won't be fine. Sin nailed Jesus to the cross. And this time he comes with vengeance on sin. You know, all I can say about Californians today that love the land of tolerance that we're in, they can tolerate anything when Jesus comes back, there will be no tolerance. There won't be any smidgen of tolerance for any sin. All sin will be judged. Now, I'm almost through, but I want to read something to you that's very sobering. I'm going to give you a moment to find this. This is in the book of Amos. Let's turn to the Old Testament in the book of Amos chapter 9. Amos is one of those little books in the Old Testament that's close to the back there. And So let me tell you how you get to it. Go to Daniel. If you can find Daniel then you can go Hosea, Joel, and then Amos. And if you're Brian Petro, you can do it much easier. You can look it up on that. You can do it electronically, which is no help at all for people who want to learn how to look in the Bible. (laughs) But find Amos chapter 9, and we're looking at verse number 1. Hosea, Joel, Amos. Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. Verse 1 says, I saw the Lord standing upon the altar, and he said, Smite the lintel of the door, that the post may shake and cut them in the head, all of them. And I will slay the last of them with the sword. He that fleeth of them shall not flee away, and he that escapeth of them shall not be delivered. Though they dig into hell, thence shall mine hand take them. Though they climb up to heaven, thence will I bring them down. And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, thence will I command the sword, and it shall slay them. And I will set mine eyes upon them for evil and not for good. This is why I say, beware the lamb. And that's because the lamb will pursue his enemies until every single last one of them is tracked down and killed. There is no place for them to hide. Now, here's the thing, folks. Either get on his side, either believe in him or beware of him. And the thing to do for every person is to repent right now while God allows it. Because one day, it'll be too late to repent. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Some of these things are frightening to us. But we know, Lord, that if we have trusted you as Savior, there's no reason to fear There's no reason for any of us to wonder what will happen to us because as believers in you, we'll never see this calamity. We'll be in heaven. We'll come out with you when the mighty armies of heaven come against this world and conquer it all. Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to hearts tonight. If there's someone who's not saved, may there be something that we've said tonight that will encourage them to trust Jesus right now. The day of God's wrath could come at any moment. There's no way that we can know the day or the hour. The Bible says it could happen at any time. Help people to realize this and to trust you, Savior, even right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please stand as we